0: This morning we're going to be in John chapter five, unpacking some of Jesus' words to those who decided they wanted to kill him. John chapter five, verses sixteen to twenty-nine is where we're going to be today. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I want to offer you one. We've got Bibles here at the center of each aisle. Uh, folks are sitting in most of the center of those, uh, of, at the center of most aisles. They'd be happy to pass one over to you. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, this one's yours. Please take it. We would love for you to have it. We would love for you to to come and talk to us about questions that you have. Based on what you read there, give us a lot of pleasure if we could do that. You're going to hear some things this morning that might surprise you. What we get in our passage this morning in John chapter 5 is Jesus' most direct statement so far about who he is. What we get this morning is Jesus talking to folks who were very upset at him already because he had done a healing on the Sabbath. And they believe this violated the Sabbath laws. They believe this was him saying he knew better than God. So they've come at him. They've started to persecute him. What we get is Jesus' response to them. And what's amazing about it is that he doesn't give an inch. He owns up to the equality with God that they accuse him of. Now my goal is for his claims to land on us with the same intensity... With which they landed on the Jews who first heard him speak. These were claims. The claims we're going to read today. These were the claims that got Jesus killed. Because those who heard them knew what he was saying. The problem for us is that often we read them. And they're so familiar. Or so distant. That they bounce right off. My goal today is for these claims to land on us with the same intensity with which they landed on those to whom he first spoke. Now, maybe you're unfamiliar with Jesus this morning. If so, chances are you're in the best position, actually, to hear these words and to see them in the way that his first hearers would have heard them. If you are not familiar with Jesus, this morning will give you a good, heavy dose of just what made him who he was. You'll get a sense of why he is the most radical of leaders What you hear might surprise you though. You're going to hear Jesus claim that he will bring you and every other person who has ever lived back to life for judgment or for life. Jesus is going to make a claim, in other words, in this text about you, where you sit right here, right now, this morning. you're going to see that maybe against your expectations, Jesus is not just a good guy who was really wise, who gave up his life to the powers that be, fighting for the oppressed. He was that, but he could never be just that. No, he's claiming to be much more. He's claiming to be so much more that if his claims aren't true, He can't be just a good guy or a wise teacher. Chances are most of you are a little bit more familiar with Jesus. Chances are, if you're familiar with Jesus today, you're the one who's got the most work to do to let these passages land on you. Because, see if this sounds familiar to you, it certainly describes me. Those of us who are very familiar with Jesus who grew up with phrases like Son of God just rolling off our tongue in the most natural of ways. We have a hard time being shocked by anything Jesus does. And what we tend to do, especially here in the South, I feel like, is we tend to think about our lives as this sort of feast, full table, feast spread upon it, aiming to get everything we want out of life, right, to maximize what we can get. And Jesus fits into that feast as a sort of garnish. It would be nice to have him too. Especially if he could help us get what we really want. And along with what we really want out of this life, we can carry around with us a sort of sense of peace, a sort of in, internal security that once, we are, once we're dead, we're going to come back to life anyway. Jesus, if his claims that we're going to unpack together this morning if those claims are true Jesus cannot be just a sort of garnish in the feast of your life that's there for when you get ready or there just so you'll have something when the meal's over he can't be just that if he's not the God who made us and the only one who can save us then he is crazy Or he's deeply, deeply dangerous. He's, after all, he is the one that people for 2,000 years have taken at his word. They've believed that he's the Lord of the universe. That he has an absolute claim on their lives. And for that reason, people have given away their money. They have spent their money differently than they would have if Jesus wasn't real. People have given up. The comfortable lives they could have led and moved to the ends of the earth to take news of him to those who've never heard. People have denied the attractions that are strong to them. The desires that they can't help. Because Jesus tells them to flourish would be to say no. People have not done things that would have given them some sort of pleasure because Jesus told them not to. And therefore their lives have been less than what they could have been if Jesus isn't who he said. And ultimately, right now, right now, all over the world, people are being killed because they believe that Jesus is who he claims to be this morning. So if Jesus is not who he claims to be, he can't be just a wise teacher you use to get more out of your life. He can't just be your guru. No, he is... He's like Jim Jones and David Koresh and Creflo Dollar and Kim Jong-il all rolled into one. He is crazy and he is dangerous. So what we've got to do today is let the true radical power of his words penetrate us so that we can see what we're going to do with Jesus Because there are only a couple of options. You can run from him. Or you can run to him. With everything that you have. My goal this morning is not to try to defend his claims. But to let them speak for themselves. And to pray that God will help us to hear his voice and live. I want to read the story for us before we break it down. What I want you to notice as I read through this, this passage is that behind Jesus' claims about himself, there is one overarching reality. It is the reality that we are going to die. That death hangs over all of us. But that death itself is not the end. For good or for ill, death is not the end. That's the reality I want you to be tracing with me as I read. And then what we're going to do is come back over this passage and unpack the three different claims that Jesus makes about himself that help us see the truth of who he is, that confront us with that truth and require us to decide whether we will be for him or against him. Now friends, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as I read to us. I'm going to read from chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, sort of picks up with where we were last week, his conversation with the Jews and why they were upset with him. And then I'm going to read all the way through um, verse 29 of chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but it's given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and then those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Three claims embedded in these verses that we've got to get our minds around if we're really going to understand who Jesus is and respond to him in the way that he wants us to. Behind all three claims is a reality, a claim of Jesus, a fundamental claim, if you will, that death is coming, but it is not the end. And the three claims about who Jesus is, you might frame them as reasons that death is not the end. That's how I want to approach it this morning. The first one is this, death is not the end, this passage points us to, because the Son gives life. This is the first and the most detailed point that Jesus makes here. So we want to spend most of our time here unpacking the things that he says. And as I mentioned before, the the really remarkable thing to notice on on the front end is that the Jews, when they hear him call God his father and claim that he's working on the Sabbath just like God is working on the Sabbath, they get what he's talking about. They get that he means he's equal with God in some sense. And Jesus doesn't back away from that. He owns it. But he owns it in a very particular way. And it's the how, that he, the how of his owning of it that we want to make sure we understand. Because he doesn't, he doesn't mean what they think he means. Now for the Jews, one of the foundational principles that they held to was the oneness of God. That there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God. And they would have heard Jesus here claiming to be a second God. Maybe a competing God. And Jesus won't stand for that. Plenty in the Old Testament had tried this and it never ended well for them. Jesus' response accepts that there is only one God. But he points to his unity with God and he takes us into one of the deepest and most mysterious aspects of Christianity. The claim that God is a kind of person, a kind of being that's fundamentally different from us. That he exists as one being, but has in his being three separate persons. And we don't have time to unpack the nature of the Trinity this morning. I wish we did, but we really have to stick to the text and what it's about. And what it's about is pointing us towards one of the things that helps us as Christians grab on to the Trinity. What it's about is one of the things that makes the three persons in the Trinity one person, or one being, rather, not one person, one being. And language matters. People have died over that language. What makes the three persons one being? one of the most important things to know is that the, the unity of God is based around a shared will and action. What they share in the Trinity is one will, one desire, one purpose. And one set of action in pursuit of that purpose. And that's what Jesus points out here. I want to walk you through some of these details. It begins with Jesus' statement in verse 19 that he only does what the father is doing. He's not trying to make his own way. Some of this would have made sense in the way that father and son relationships worked in Jesus' day. It was almost a given that you were going to do what your dad did. That's how families... Continue to perpetuate themselves over time was they, they had a trade or a farm and they would hand it down from one to the next. In our, in our society, we know barely anything of that. In fact, if, any, if there's any sort of cultural association with father, fatherhood and sonship in our, in our day, it's probably more likely that you want to outpace your dad, right? You want to set your own way. You want to go out on your own and do something different. You want to be more. The, the, the American myth is of The family's constantly climbing, right? Where the, the children do more than the fathers. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus only does, he says, what his father is doing. Only what he sees him doing. And then he explains it. He explains this with a series of phrases that begin with the word For. This is one of those really important words in biblical studies. Every time you see it, you want to pause right there and understand you're about to have something explained to you, right? The reason for what Jesus has just said is about to be unpacked. So The reason that the Father does nothing on his own and only does what the Father is, is doing is coming. For, in other words, here's what I mean. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For, let me say even more. The Father loves the Son and shows him everything that he's doing. The son doesn't act alone, we said. Not with his own agenda. He only does what the father's doing. And now he explains that the father's love for the son is what makes him love to share his activity with him. What they're doing together is his delight. Think of a father. It's, it's, it's almost like a, I, I think there's a parable almost embedded here in these verses. That we're meant to imagine a father and a son together in the workshop. Let's say they're blacksmiths or something like that. The father showing his son the family business. This is how you do it. And watching the son take it on as his own. The love that the father has for seeing his son own it, get it, love it, just like his father loves it. Able to do it just like his father has been able to do it. The father, because he loves the son, shows him everything he's doing. And what you've seen, Jesus says, what you've seen so far is nothing compared to what God is doing. Greater works than these I will show you. So what we're meant to ask, the key question, the the, the key question to answer here is, what is it that the father's doing that his love for the son has made him bring the son in on? What is it that they're huddled up together talking about? What's the plan that they've sketched? What are they looking into the future and trying to accomplish? What are they doing together that binds them together? My father is working until now and I am working, Jesus has said. What are they doing? That's the last four. Verse 21. Here's what they're doing. The Father raises the dead and gives them life. So also the Son gives life to whom he will. The work of the Father, what he's doing, his mission is to reverse the power of death and to give life in its place. And he has authorized his son to do the job. Maybe it would help if we imagined the story, the biblical story that comes up to this point. A story that I think is reflected in our experience. It will help us understand the beauty in what we're told here. What we're told, biblical story is that God created humans in his image. that, That humans were the crowning achievement of his work. That he looked on them and he said, this is very good. They reflect something about me. Unique among all things is God's love for humans made in his image. He made them for himself. He made them to enjoy him and to rely on him and to live with him and through him and in peace and deep communion. In fact, the Bible's best example, the best metaphor or analogy for, for what God made humans to have with him is marriage. The whole thing is instituted by God to point to the beauty of God's relationship with us. It's that kind of intimacy That kind of comprehensive care and security and rest that God had in mind for his humans. But from the first, humans have been looking for an upgrade. From the first, from Adam and Eve, down to each one of us. Our tendency has been to define the good life as one that we make for ourselves. To define the good life as the one that we don't have yet. What this tendency has unleashed in the world is everything that's broken and wrong. In the place of peace and trust in God's provision, where we know that He is for us and will provide for every need, what do we experience? We work ourselves to the bone and we still worry whether we'll have enough. We work ourselves to the bone and we still feel often like it's fruitless labor. In place of harmony with each other. As those who trust in God have no reason to fear each other. In place of that harmony, we turn on each other. In ways that are as small as the smallest spat between spouses. And as large as the social injustices of racism. Imperialism. Slavery. All driven by the sense... We're on our own and only the fittest survive. So it's me against you. Without the dignity of God's image to draw from, to give us meaning and purpose and hope, we're left to try to find on our own some reason for being. And for all of our language about how special we are, deep down we wonder if we're worth anything at all, right? And above all this, we live in bodies that break down, that can't survive the trauma of a car accident, bodies that get cancer, bodies that decay and ultimately die. In place of life, in place of life, we know death. That is the human condition, and that is the backdrop against which this picture is being painted. This is what we've become. This is what we deserve. It's the kind of thing we root for in movies, right? When someone goes out on his own, tries to establish himself, tries to take credit for something someone else has done, we want to see justice. We want to see him exposed, right? That's what's happening to us, apart from God. But the beautiful message here, Jesus' message to us is that God was not satisfied with this result. That in spite of the fact that he was the one sinned against, God has come to us. And here's the picture. I want to take a little bit of imaginative liberty here, okay? Go a little bit beyond the text, but just as a way of trying to help us to see what the text actually does say. Imagine, imagine God and his son looking down upon all that He's made. Upon humans that he made in his image and declared to be very good, on humans that he made because he loves them and wants to know them. Looking down on those that he's made and seeing what's happening to them. You can imagine him telling his son, Son, they're dying. They're walking around this life so long as they've got it like a bunch of zombies. And they're headed for death and they don't even know it. They're dying. We have to save them. We must give them life. We'll do it together. And the son says to the father, Yes, father. Yes, father, I love them. I love that you love them. I will give them life. I will give them my life. That's the message of the whole gospel of John. God has come to us to give his life so that we will know life. The message, friends, is that Jesus has died a death we were meant to die. That his resurrection proves it covered our sins once and for all if we will only trust in him. This is a shocking claim that Jesus makes. Do not domesticate him. Jesus is claiming to be God. Only God gives life. The Jews knew that. And we know that no mere human has the power to make someone else live. We know that. Jesus is claiming he does have that power. Don't domesticate him. He is not talking about helping you feel better about yourself until you die. He is saying he can make you alive again when your body is in the ground. He's claiming in the words of verse 25 that an hour is coming and is even now here when he will speak and the dead will hear his voice and come to life. Those who have read this gospel up to this point know that hour has already come. They have seen him speak to the man whose son was ill, and from a distance say, go, your son will live, and make the boy well. They've seen him speak to a man who had been an invalid for 38 years, say, get up and walk, and seen the man come to life. Readers of the gospel know what Jesus means. That time is already here. The winter is breaking. The spring is coming. And it's a time that's still to come. Verse 25 is also looking ahead. To a day at the end when all who have ever died will come out for life or for judgment. When he will speak and those that we love and have lost will hear and come. When you will hear and come out. If it's true, we look to Jesus alone. If, if what he says here is correct, then we look to him and to him alone. There's no other hope. There is no one else who can take you to God. Whoever does not honor the Son, verse 23 says, does not honor the Father who sent him. What we need is not some new enlightenment. What we need is not just some better way to get the most out of this life. What we need is not moral reform. What we need is someone who can bring us back from the grave. and Jesus is the one who can do it. So honor the Son. Now, there's a second major claim here that we've got to address. Because this Jesus who claims to bring life, claims to bring judgment as well. Notice how often that theme is repeated here. The work of the Father responding to the brokenness of the world is also a work of judgment. And he's given that work to his Son as well. Not just the work of giving life. It comes up first in verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And then later on, he comes back to it and explains it a little bit more. It's behind verses 27 to 29. He's given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. And now, we're, now the scene is described for us. The great end time judgment that he's talking about here is described for us. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. All of them. From your family members whom you have loved and have lost and lie in the ground to this day to every rogue villain that history has ever produced. Kim Jong Il will hear his voice and he will come out. Hitler will hear his voice and he will come out. You will hear his voice and you will come out. And when you come... This is what will happen. Jesus will pass judgment. Those who have done good will go into life. And those who have done evil will go into death. But not death as the end of your existence. I think that's what this passage is pointing us to. Death is actually not the end. Death is a prelude to an endless and infinite exposure of your false hopes. It's a horrifying idea. If you're not horrified by it, it's because it's too familiar to you. The notion of an endless punishment that even death doesn't put an end to is a horrifying idea that is claimed here insisted on here by the same Jesus that promises life to those who trust in him. So we lose the right to pick and choose, right? We lose the right to say, I'm going to take the Jesus from verse 25, but I don't want the one from verses 27 to 29. It's, it's a package deal. It's too horrible even to fully understand what it could mean that this faith, fate worse than death is meant for people who are real with real names, with real histories. Now, what I want to do, without trying to defend this idea, is at least warn you, friends, against rejecting this idea because you don't like this idea. I would worry about you if you did like the idea, in all seriousness. But there are things in all of our lives, all over our lives, that are just bigger than us. Whether we like them doesn't come into the picture. I don't like the fact that, due to my inherited genes that I had no control over, my hair's falling out. I don't like the fact that time steals away so much of what I enjoy. From a good vacation, always ends too soon. To the precious idiosyncrasies of my toddlers who are growing too fast. To the lives of my two grandfathers who I love and want back. I don't like these things. But my not liking them doesn't change them. There are physical realities here that are bigger than me. So what I feel about them doesn't come into it. Now the trick is, The trick is to to recognize that when it comes to ideas about reality, about what is, on matters that we don't see, we've got to suppress in ourselves the sense that we have more control there than we do over physical realities we know we can't control, right? I've submitted to the baldness. It's harder for me to submit to certain ideas that I don't like. But friends, we are no more in control over what is true than we are over what happens to our physical bodies. It either is or it isn't, but what we feel about it doesn't come into the picture. Be careful, friends, not to reject Jesus because you don't like the way that he sounds. There is life in him. There is death if you reject him. Don't reject him because you don't like it. Think about it. Pray honestly about it. Talk to friends about it. This is a safe place for you to dialogue about things in the Bible that are hard to hear but don't reject it because it's hard to hear. The real question that this prospect of judgment, this claim that he gets to judge because he is God, leaves us with is what what are we to do? If we want life and we want to avoid judgment, what do we do? And on the surface of it, verse 29 is not very encouraging. Right? Jesus says, those who come out Those who hear my voice come out of the tombs. Well, they're going to be judged based on if they've done good or evil. That's not an encouraging message at all. I know which side I fall on. In the best case scenario, in worst case scenario, we've already done evil. It's too late. Ship has sailed. Nothing to be done about it. Best case scenario, we've got now to the end of our lives to try to make the balances even out. Do you want to live with that kind of pressure? I know which side. I know which side mine is going to end up on. If all we had was this verse, it could easily read like, we have no hope. Is that what Jesus means? Thankfully, this isn't the only verse that we have. And this is the third claim that Jesus makes. This is where we're closing. The third claim that Jesus makes that points us to how to respond to Him. I think we've got to read verse 29. In this claim of judgment, in light of the whole gospel, and even in light of what's said in our passage. We've got to read it, for example, in light of verses 23 and 24. In verse 23, God gives us the end game. The reason that he has called his son into this work and said, we're going to give him life. You're going to do it. You give life, you exercise judgment. The reason God has given his son that charge is because he wants people to honor the son just as they honor the father. In fact, He's saying here, you can't come to me at all if you don't come to me through Jesus. If you reject my son, it's the same as rejecting me. What he wants is for Jesus to be honored. It's a claim from Jesus' mouth that he should be worshipped. And that's what gets him killed. The Jews know what he's claiming here. That's what gets him killed. I think verse 24 explains to us what verse 23 is getting at. Verse 23 calls for us to honor the Son. Verse 24 shows us what it looks like to honor Him. Verse 24 shows us what is meant by those who do good in verse 29 versus those who do evil in verse 29. Verse 24 says, Those who hear my word and believe Him who sent me have eternal life. This is the one who honors the Son. This is the one who has passed from judgment and death into life. It is the one who hears my word and who believes him who sent me. To honor the Son is to trust that he can be who he claims to be. It is to latch hold to him. And it is to be among those whom he looks upon at that final judgment and says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You grabbed onto me by faith. It's not that good works don't matter in verse 29. I think they do. But the New Testament is really consistent and clear on this point. The good works that matter to God are those that are done in God. John chapter 3 has already talked about this. The good works that matter to him are the ones that come from our sense that he has already given us everything that we need. Who wouldn't want to live for this God? Who wouldn't want to do anything that pleases him given all that he has given to us? Those are the good works that put you into the category that knows life, not because you earned it. Would that honor the son if he only gave life to those who deserved it anyway? Does that honor him? No. What honors Him is that He is not like us. That His love is stronger, more resilient, more rooted in grace and mercy than our love is. What honors Him is to recognize that we don't deserve Him. If we grab hold of Him, He will be for us. Consider this image. Consider one reference in one image. Chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus is confronting Jews who want to know what they have to do to be saved. May as well have been folks who had heard him say, the dead are going to hear my voice. They're coming out of the tombs. Those who've done good to judgment, or to, to life, those who've done evil to judgment. Chapter 26, the Jews come to him and say, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Tell us. And Jesus' answer is this. This is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he sent. I think it squares perfectly, verses 23 and 24. This is the work of God, that you honor the Son. That you hear His word and believe. Think of honoring the Son as honoring a life raft and the one who's thrown it to you. Imagine yourself as lost at sea. With waves that are crushing you. Surrounded by sharks that want to devour you. With no hope, nowhere to put your feet, nothing to grab onto, and someone sees you, recognizing that you're dying and comes to you with a life raft. Now how do you honor that raft? You honor it by believing that it'll hold you up, and therefore grabbing hold of it. To grab hold of it is to have life. It's to have passed from death to life. To reject it. To reject it is to remain in death. So friends, honor the Son. Father, these are hard words that we want to hear and from which we want to live. That means we need your Spirit to soften us to them, to help us to see their beauty, to grab hold of them with joy. And without hesitation. That response comes only by your grace. So help us, Father. Help us to see and to hear and to live. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.